Okay, welcome back to Rockstock Channel. It is Wednesday, December 6th, uh, 6 o'clock in the morning, my time. Uh, we are very privileged to have, I think for the fourth time, Ken Brinsden, who's the chairman of Patriot Battery Metals, uh, but used to be the CEO of Pilbara Minerals. And uh, we have a lot to talk about. There's been a lot of activity in M&A in Western Australia in lithium, but uh, Ken used to run Atlas Iron and is very experienced in the iron ore space as well, uh, and has some experience with Chris Ellison and Gina Reinhardt and, and, and the like. Uh, before I start, I have a bunch of uh, props. I'm wearing a Rolling Stonks t-shirt from the uh, No Filter Tour in 2019. So this is gonna be a No Filter conversation. Uh, I don't know if you can see it, but I have a lava lamp over there, um, and I'm about to uh, burn some incense um you know with my rolling stones or rolling stones uh incense holder um you know a bit of a kumbaya uh moment here i also have this prop this is from uh the beijing olympics in 2008 when i was uh very involved in in iron ore i didn't actually go to the olympics but a client of mine gave me uh this plushy toy that was uh, popular there and also in uh, bull's lair is this uh, book on the pilbara um, so we, we've had a lot of experience, uh, Rodney and me and you, uh, Ken, uh, with cycles, um, in iron ore and, um, and, uh, and lithium, we've called it, uh, L-I-F-E, you know, the good life, the wonderful life, life in the fast lane, um, you know, Gina and Chris Ellison. Before we start today's video, we'd like to thank Lithium Royalty Corp, listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange, ticker symbol L-I-R-C. We'll share more later in the video. Um, let's just to kind of talk about that. There's like a dichotomy of strategics making bids primarily for Western Australian spodumene assets, although we saw the Chinese uh, kind of coming into Brazil uh, yesterday in, in, in uh, Atlas Lithium. You know, so there's an element of in the iron ore space, you have Vale in Brazil and, uh, you know, the big three in Western Australia, Rio Tinto, BHP and Fortescue, um, going back to the four times we've uh, had you on, the first was uh, in 2019, where we were using uh, Men at Work, you know, who can it be now? Because you had an auction underway at the time following Minrez's auction for Wajina, where Albemol came in. That auction didn't finish with a positive outcome um, because the market, you know, was, going down from 2018 and you were in 2019. So, you know, they were a bit ahead of you. Um, and uh, the market was just wasn't there. We then had you on in September 2021, you know, and the market had started to tick up um, or had more than started to tick up. Um, you had your BMX auction and we, we entitled that spodumene speculation. Uh, we've since had Dale Henderson on and, and have called this kind of spodumene software. Uh, and then we last time we had you on was March of this year um, as part of our Canada Rocks conference, which was exclusively focused on on Canada spodumene. And you are now the chairman, as I said, I think um, you know of of Patriot talking about you know market there. We I, I listened to that that interview uh, this morning, and uh, I reminded myself that the BMX auctions uh, that Pilbara had uh, pioneered you know, had just stopped, you know, around, you know, prior to, to March. 
Uh, so in hindsight, that was like a signal, you know, that we should have been, um, you know, maybe leaving the market uh, for a period of time. Uh, Pilbara is the most shorted stock, I think, on the ASX, I think 20% short, despite having a pristine balance sheet. Um, Guangzhou Futures, you know, which just started in July in China, um, as at record lows, has done nothing but go down. The Wuxi Futures, the things that, like, these are the people that, this is, these are things that people are watching every day in the way that they were watching those, you know, kind of BMX auctions. So you had spoken about that during COVID, China just didn't stop building conversion and that the demand for hard rock was just, you know, insatiable. Um, demand numbers, uh, EV, ESS, Rodney keeps saying, you know, are, are strong. They're out of China. You know, we so what's happened this year? We had a, a, a you know, a, a fall through March, April. We call the bottom. We spiked back, you know, 70% up, I think, um, by June, July. And then, you know, we've since just gone, you know, nothing but down. We thought this was restocking. Is it a demand problem or is it a supply problem? Because, um, you know, lithium's very abundant. There's lipidolite in Australia. I'm sorry, lipidolite in China, you know, African. Like, what's your assessment of, like, where have we got this wrong? Like, structural deficit we've all been talking about. And on the other hand, Goldman Sachs, we all made fun of Goldman Sachs saying, you know, price is not going to go down to 11,000 in 2024. But the reality is, is that they undershot their forecast in 2023. It's actually a lot lower than they had forecast when they first made that call. So with all of that as a backdrop, uh, you know, give us some initial thoughts and, and we could dig deeper into a lot of the questions I, uh, that are embedded in, in this lead in. Well, Howard, Rodney, really nice to be with you. Thanks for the chance to participate again, guys. I really appreciate it. And uh, Howard, you've got me doing a whole heap of reminiscing there, I think. Um, <laughs> combination of highs and lows in the iron ore industry and, and of course, now lithium. Uh, so where to start? Uh, I think it's safe to say that China is both still the world's most important lithium raw material market, um, but it's also a complicating factor um, because there are many things that, that are unique about the China market and doing business with China. Um, one thing that I've come to accept over time is that when you're doing business with China, uh, you're going to have to expect volatility. And, and it's principally motivated by, I think, a couple of things. Um, firstly, uh, when everybody thinks about business in China, they want to give them credit for being long-term thinkers. Um, but I've come to the conclusion over the decades that that might be giving credit, not completely where it's due, because that argument might be true, um, when you're dealing with government interests, but actually in business, um, they don't really think particularly, uh, uh, uh long-term. In fact, their behavior in, in markets is actually really short-term thinking. And that's why you'd get these, these extremes in, in uh, pricing outcomes. And, and honestly, I've seen it, I don't want to draw too many parallels to iron ore markets, save to say, historically, there's been huge volatility in iron ore pricing going into China. 
um, and especially with the, the emergence of spot markets in China. And now I, I think something similar in respect of lithium. Um, the tension in Chinese markets is motivated by everyone wanting to buy on the same day, um, but equally wanting to sell on the same day when the market's going the other way. So, so I would, the first thing I would say is when dealing with China, um, that volatility is to be expected. Now, the other key determining factor here is also um, where China goes when they're looking to solve a problem. And, and honestly, I feel like the current environment can at least in part be explained by sourcing lithium from novel, uh, novel jurisdictions, but equally uh, novel products. And the rise of, of the um, and petalites and even some of the direct shipping ores um, are all part of a classic kind of China response to facilitate more supply. Um, if that was all it was, you know, I would probably stop there, but I also have a view um, that China's inclined to subsidise that, that sort of novel supply with a view to solving a bigger problem. Um, they don't want lithium raw materials at sixty dollars or $70,000 a tonne. Um, they want it, you know, whatever whatever the number is, let's say it's sub-30 or sub-$25,000 a tonne. And as a result, they're prepared to back in um, novel sources of supply that solve for a, for a uh, probably a shorter term supply um, solution. Now, I say all that, but I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist. To me, in many respects, that's actually a natural thing for, for China to do, and they have a track record of doing it. Um, I think something similar happened in the iron ore industry, you know, say, uh, drawing a parallel to domestic magnetite supply. And it's one of the reasons why iron ore now struggles to get below you know, $100 a tonne, um, because the market's been underwritten by projects that really, if you were com genuinely competing for capital, um, shouldn't have been developed. So in, in my sort of humble view, um, what's really happening here is that we're sowing the seeds for, you know, the next run up in pricing that probably, you know, surprises us all again. Um, but perhaps more important than that, underwrites a long, a stronger for longer long run price in lithium raw materials. And that's because the allocation of capital gets grossly upset um, by interference, you know, in the market. So, so it's a long winded way of saying China, both a very important market, but equally a complicating factor. Uh, what else do you draw from the current experience? So you'd simply say, um, you hope over time the right projects at attract capital. Uh, and I've also got to say there'll be some disassociation, and in particular in the next five to seven years, um, with a view to developing new supply chains that afford an opportunity to bypass China. And, and this, the seeds of that are already starting to happen. Um, the plants being developed here in Western Australia, West Farmers, Albemarle, Kemerton and and you know, Tianchi IGO at, at Quinana. Um, I would argue with more to come. Um, you know, I have a particular interest in the North American and European markets as a function of my involvement at, at Patriot. Um, it seems to me that there'll be a more concerted effort in the coming five years to, to build out these alternate supply chains so that you're not completely reliant uh, on, on the China supply solution or value-added chemical solution.
Um, oh, yeah, look, sorry, I shouldn't forget the work that POSCO and Pilbara are doing in, in uh, Korea to further diversify supply chains as well. They're all really important initiatives, but it's just the beginning. There's a lot more of that to come. You'd like to think that the effect of all that will actually be to smooth the market. It's interesting to me that in Japan and Korea, uh, lithium raw materials or value-added chemicals still $35 a kilo, perhaps more. Um, you know, I think that tells you something. Um, the volatility in China is a bit of a unique beast. Uh, in in the longer run markets, um, something that looks a little bit more, relatively speaking, stable pricing didn't hit the highs that are hit in China, but probably equally um, won't hit the lows that were hit in China either. So, so yeah, agree, Howard. It's a it's a vexing time, and I appreciate that investors must must struggle with this volatility. Um, we as in Lithium raw materials are a, a um, you know, a, a 10, 10 years ago, a boutique industry. Of course, quite a bit of growth going on in, in the subsequent decade. Um, but relatively speaking, still a, still a small, smaller market growing. And you're going to, from time to time, get these disconnects emerging. And we've, to a certain extent, we've got to kind of suffer through it um, to get to the other side. But inevitably, you do. That's a great uh, explanation, uh, Ken. Just you t you touched on something, and I guess I'll switch around the question slightly because as much as we want to see uh, a, a, an ex-China supply chain, how realistic do you think it is to expect that we'll have a reasonably sized ex-China supply chain before 2030? Yeah, I'm, opt I'm optimistic, um, Rodney. I think I think it's a huge issue for, for Western markets, the, the extent to which the industry as a whole is reliant on, on China. And it is going to force some really serious investment in these alternate supply chains. And in fact, the, you know, the IRA, I guess, has, has started that process. Um, there's already significant developments going on downstream in cell making capacity, cathode plants, and and a little bit as it relates to to value added chemicals. Um, but I would argue there is going to be a lot more. And what it comes down to is the dire straits that I think Western car makers are in, driven by the competition that's emerging from China. So what? What, what Western car makers are faced with is not only having to rearrange their supply chains to support growth in EV sales. I believe customers are ready for it. That, that's basically what's happening. As long as you've got a product that's cost competitive, um, I think they're selling well. Uh, maybe the US is the one exception, but if you look in Europe and even here in Australia on the roads, um, there is plenty of EVs emerging and actually a lot of Chinese EVs, BYD has been a massive seller here. So, so what do you do if you're a Western car maker? You've got to reshape your supply chain to, to support future EV production. Um, but worse than that, you've got the Chinese product in your market today dominating, basically. Um, and it's because it's competitively priced and uh, and I think you could rightly argue it's a quality product. So a consumer is buying the EV. They're just not buying the VW, the BMW, the Merck, 
um, you know, the GM because they're not competitively priced. Um, China's already got there because they were investing 10 years ago. The Western OEMs have 10 years worth of catch up to do. So the reason for dwelling on that subject matter is to say, how does a Western car maker survive in the face of that competition? My take is that they'll be supported by governments who are otherwise going to see their industry decimated. Um, Western car makers are not going to survive against that competition because they're 10 years behind. So you will see an IRA style response to force the issue to basically get these supply chains in place um, so that their car industries can literally survive. Otherwise, they'll be dead. They won't exist. Ken, I, I want to um, pick up on that point, but also a, a number of the other ones that you were talking about um, before. Um, Andrew Wars. Andrew Ross Sorkin in his recent uh, deal book interview with um, Elon Musk, um, his uh, berating of the uh, of the media uh, advertisers um, got all the press. But there was a question there that we'll, we'll insert into this video. Reputation of that is that the Tesla Model Y will be the best selling car of any kind on Earth this year. Of any kind, gasoline or otherwise. Is there another car company that you think is doing a good job with EVs? I mean, I think the Chinese car companies are extremely competitive. Um, by far, our toughest competition is in China. So, um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of people who, who out there who think that the top 10 car company is going to be Tesla followed by nine Chinese car companies. Um, I think they might not be wrong. So... Um, China is super good at manufacturing and the work ethic is incredible. And Elon Musk responded in the same way that you responded, you know, is that his biggest competition is from Tesla, from uh, China. So there's Tesla at the top and then the next nine are Chinese, you know, as he thinks about competitors and the Chinese market's very competitive and Tesla does very well in there. But um, that goes straight to the point that you're making. But I also worry. We have an election coming up and there are, you know, EVs is a, is a red state, blue state kind of thing, uh, Democrat, Republican thing. There are some people here in America who say that EVs are a solution without a problem, right? You know, cars are relative, ICE cars are relatively cheap. And, but on the other hand, a lot of the IRA benefits are in red states and you do have a lot of battery factories uh, being developed there. On the other hand, you know, GM, is just gave ten billion dollars back in share buybacks, um, you know, because they're making money from, you know, big trucks, uh, and they also increase their dividend. So why are they not investing in EVs? Like it, it's going to look really bad politically in a couple of years if all of a sudden GM is being bailed out because their EV strategy uh, didn't pan out, you know, and they had just kind of like done these buybacks. So I, I don't know. This is going to play out next year in U.S. politics. The, the investments and, and the rules, uh, the guidance is out now on what is a foreign entity of concern, you know, from a minerals point of view and, and a battery point of view. <clears throat> but um, like I, I, as an American, I, I just I hope and don't think I, I just don't think that they're going to allow, you, you know, the Chinese automakers to come to America in the way that the Koreans have and the way that the Japanese have over the last kind of a couple of decades 
but it's a complex issue because we're so intertwined with China otherwise. So to be seen, you know, on that, it is a bit of a demand, you know, consideration. Going back to this, I do want to make this comparison to iron ore and and lithium, and I know it's not the same, but spodumene is relatively close. We're talking about spodumene software, stronger for longer. Iron ore price has been higher for longer. Um, someone joked about it's no longer spodumene software. It could be like, you know, hard rock hardware, right? <laughs> From a margin perspective, and actually it could go down to spodumene supermarkets. Like it could be you know, uh, very thin margins, but you you had argued, you made a comment about the magnetite in, in iron ore. Someone I spoke to, I've been having lots and lots and lots of conversations over the last kind of few weeks, just a little bit paranoid. Can lithium become like uranium and uninteresting for kind of like 10 years, or is this just like a cyclical downturn as part of a, a, a continued structural, um, uh, you know, deficit, uh, you know, in secular you know, upturn, but but someone told me that uh, a number of years ago in the iron ore market, China made this big announcement about some big project in China, you know, that kind of spooked the price of iron ore. I don't remember exactly what he was referring to. Maybe you'll remember that, but he was comparing that to, you know, the CATL, um, you know, sodium ion uh, scare, you know, earlier this year, just like like big China puts out like a big worry that something could be displaced in order to talk down the price. Um, what do you, what were you referring to when you mentioned the magnetite story that worked away from China, you know, and resulted in this very persistent, stronger for longer software margins in the iron ore space? Yeah, I think it's, it's reasonably simple. Uh, the concept that, there is only, so if you want to draw the parallel to iron ore, you know, there's very few Yandy mines, mining area C's, um, Brazil's um, S13 or whatever it's called. The concept that you have ultra high grade, conveniently located to, you know, to logistics ports that facilitates a very, very low cost. Um, those projects, are relatively rare. They're relatively rare in iron ore. They're relatively rare in gold. They're relatively rare in in, in copper. Um, and then you have a whole heap of projects that otherwise build out the right hand side of the cost curve. So the link to to that I'm referring to that relates to this concept of, of iron ore pricing is that China got very aggressive as iron ore pricing ran up in the period um, post the, the GFC. So now I'm referring to, let's say, you know, 2009, 10, 11, and 12. And a lot of new production made it to market uh, that was domestically in China that was underwritten by um, low-grade magnetite production for, for, to access iron ore. And I think the, the um, you know, the rhetoric at the time was, oh, it's a game changer because it's so low cost um, and and we can underwrite, you know, our supply domestically and lessen our reliance on, on Pilbara and Brazilian iron ore. But the truth is it's not low cost and it was never going to be because it's very low grade. It's not necessarily conveniently located. Um, and it requires a lot more processing than your standard sort of direct shipping or 
um, that you might otherwise get in the field for a, or, or um, uh, a very high grade product from Brazil, for example. So, so it feels like um, a similar thesis is emerging now as China looks for, for you know, novel supply responses and actually even mat matching it with a bit of jawboning around you know, what's really happening there. Is it really low cost? And I would contend um, it's not. It's not really low cost because you can't have an incredibly low grade lipidolite, um, you know, being turned into a value added chemical with hydrofluoric acid if it was fully costed for the purpose of all the environmental remediation and the low cost of, sorry, the low grade of, of, of concentrate input for a high strip ratio. You know, all those things do not translate to low cost despite what you're told. Um, so the effect of that, I'm contending is to really just continue to build out the right hand side of the cost curve, which ultimately means in the end, we probably need to book a higher cost for industry um, in the medium term to, to underwrite the supply base. Um, it might be that very important projects got, got starved of capital in this period because risk capital got scared off in, in Western markets. I don't think we're there yet, but, but nonetheless, that's, that's possible. Um, and, and, you know, as a result, the net effect is um, higher pricing in the medium term, probably for longer to continue to sustain the industry. So um, the other inescapable truth I alluded to it earlier, the, the confluence of serious scale, and by that, I, you know, not even just, you know, hundreds of millions of tons in resource, the way it presents in the ground. So big fat pegmatites that are productive and minimal, minimized dilution, that combined with convenient location and uh, the right mineralogical inputs to, to increase recovery, that is rare. That is the rare confluence of events that contributes to what you, you would call, you know, apologies for the, um, for the generic statement around a world-class project or a tier one project, but the truth is that's what it is. That's what it's defined by, you know, high grade, Right mineralogy scale, not a, not just even in terms of total tons, but the way that's pegmatite and spodumene presents in the ground, that's rare, and that's why certain projects are always going to be a, a classic money maker in almost any part of the cycle. And you know, again, iron ore analogy: there's not many Yandy mines, there's not many mining area cities that can deliver for thirty-five dollars a ton and still get a hundred ton, hundred dollars a ton in the market today. And that is no doubt why you have uh, joined Patriot, um, because you identified and saw that to be a, um, a, a world-class mine in the way that Pilbara, uh, Pil Pilgangura is. Uh, we've talked about the analogy uh, with you and with Dale Henderson of Pilgangora and Pilbara being like Fortescue, you know, the new force in, in lithium, the new force in iron ore. Uh, but your experience at Atlas Iron, um, those were not world-class mines, right? That was a collection. We worked for a company that sold to, we worked for Ferraz, right, which, which uh, Atlas bought. Atlas bought a lot of small developers, um, but ultimately went bankrupt, right? Um, I'm not actually sure, uh, not to take you down a, a, a negative memory lane, but nevertheless, you, you have had interactions with uh, Chris Ellison, you know, through that, you've had uh, 
Minrez has a contract, I think, with Pilbara. But if I, if I look at Minrez's strategy, Chris Ellison's strategy, I think he's in, he bought Bald Hill. You know, he's in Essential, um, Global Lithium, Azure. Uh, is he in Wildcat? I can't remember. Uh, what was a missing one? Um, Delta, Delta, Delta Lithium. You know, Azure, you could argue Liontown, you know, are big mines, uh, but the others are not, right? And he's involved in kind of neutralizing kind of stakes. Uh, so I, I wanted, and then I, we spoke to Dale Henderson and said, okay, why hasn't Pilbara done anything? And then he reminded me, of course, he didn't really need to remind me that the um, the best deal ever, I think possibly in lithium was the one you did, you know, with buying Altura essentially for replacement cost at the bottom, bottom of the market, $140, $150 million. So how do you assess the, the, the strategy, you know, of, of Chris Ellison and Gina? Yes, they're making lots of, Gina's making tons of money in iron ore. Chris Ellison just did a, a billion-dollar bond offering. Uh, I think his M&A activity kind of coincided with having completed that uh, bond offering. Uh, but there's also an element of, we're calling this video, um, you know, Western Australian, you know, lithium patriots, right? Like your family, you know, has a long history, I think, in the mining industry. Uh, Gina Reinhart's clearly does. I know Andrew Forrest does. There definitely seems to be an element here between Chris and Gina um, to thwart, you know, even friendly foreigners like Albemarle or SQM. So if, if you could speak to that, you know, you're reading the tea leaves of what's happening there, there's also some rumors um, that both Chris and Gina have stealthily, and maybe even Pilbara, you know, been buying small stakes not yet disclosed in some of the Canadian assets. But let's leave that for a, a later conversation. What's your assessment of all of this M and A activity by Chris and Gina predominantly, you know, versus you know the foreigners? what's going on yeah no you've raised a couple of interesting points there mate and and the the um before we just discuss their moves in lithium there's a little bit of case history that's worthwhile reflecting on because i think it read as it relates to atlas iron actually because it helps to underwrite the theme that i was sharing about where where long-run pricing lands and the relative value in assets over time um, oh, by the way, we managed to keep the doors open at, at Atlas. We renegotiated um, with the bondholders and there was an equity swap um, for basically to pay back the outstanding bond. So um, I think the best way to describe it, how it is that we managed to save the furniture in, uh, in 2000, late 2014, early 2015. The reason I'm reflecting on that point is that those same assets today are now owned by um, Hancock Prospecting, um, you know, of Gino Reinhardt fame. And those same assets in the new price environment are probably at about the 50th percentile of the cost curve and actually make really healthy cash flow. Um, our problem at Atlas Iron was, in many respects, we were ahead of the curve in collecting those assets. But it is absolutely the case today that those same assets are making really strong cash flow as a function of the new price that's established in iron ore. So I feel like that's that's worthwhile sharing because 
it has the effect of, of reinforcing the point I'm making about what's really going to happen in, in lithium material markets over time. There was no analyst globally that would ever have imagined a long run price in, in iron ore above $85 a tonne. Um, but that hasn't, it hasn't fallen below $85 a tonne for the best part of kind of two or three years now. And, and it's, it's the seeds of that, that, um, opportunity for industry were, were sown, you know, back in the period of time where we were struggling to keep the doors open at Atlas Iron. Yeah, that's, that's, that's worth sharing just to reinforce the point I'm making about what's happening to the right hand side of the cost curve in, in the lithium world. Um, as to so, so on that, so do you think Chris Ellison is is with plays with some of these smaller mines, you know, playing Hancock, you know, collecting those other mines? Because I don't know where on the cost curve, you know, the Bald Hill Essential, you know, Delta, you know, et cetera. I don't know that the first quartile, I think they're probably second quartile. Do you think that's a well, similar strategy is taking that lesson? Yeah, no, I think that's probably right, Howard. Um, by historical measures, they may not be low cost mines, but there's a reasonable chance as the industry continues to keep expanding to support demand growth, that they become genuinely competitive. Um, and that's, that's a motivating factor, at least in part, I would say, um, for the acquisition strategy um, to address uh, well, you know, I don't have any particular sort of special insight to, to the strategy of mineral resources in lithium, other than to say that they've made a very, very successful business of, you know, buying assets at lows in the market and selling high. That's, that's one thing that's worked incredibly well for, for minerals over the, the, you know, the 18 years of their existence. Um, but he's also done a really good job attaching uh, mining service enterprise to those assets that he's that he's invested in, and um, and he thinks about them, I think, as being you know an annuity style business where it doesn't really matter what's happening with the underlying commodity because I'm still making reasonable cash flow from the mining services I provide. So uh, a very different model, nonetheless incredibly successful, and um, and he's looking to deploy that on mass in the lithium world. It seems to me that's that's a that's a pretty sound kind of model for for minerals to deploy. In the case of uh, Hank, oh, sorry, and of course, there's also that theme around, um, you know, Western Australia is, is his backyard. So it, it looks to me like, you know, that's going to work for him over time. In the case of Hancock prospecting, um, maybe the motivation there is just a little bit different. Uh, again, I'm only, I'm only, um, you know, providing opinion without having any special insight to, to the Hancock organization. Ultimately, the, the big Roy Hill mine, which is a, a, a very strong cash flow asset in today's market, um, is going to have an end date, in which case, um, you know, being able to diversify interests while you're making incredible uh, cash flow, uh, to me, also looks like a valid strategy. Um, and the assets are, are not that common, you know, that you're able to actually bid for. So that's what's created a bit of tension and a bit of fear of missing out. And, you know, hence the action underway. Um, I think I might have said when we've spoken before, uh, Howard, I, you know, the way I view it is to say there is a reasonable chance for all the dynamics that I've described about pricing being stronger for longer through the cycle. 
um, there's a reasonable chance you're still getting these assets cheap and, and, and it probably will motivate more um, M&A, even you know, compared to what we've seen today. Um, to me, that seems highly likely because there are lots of organisations globally that aren't that well set in the, in the new energy world. And, um, and if you're one of the big guys with the protesters out the front of your AGM, that's going to become a much bigger part of your, your world um, in the coming years, you've really got to be able to demonstrate that you're setting yourself up for the new mining economy, in which case, inevitably, more mature assets are going to get bought. They are. That's, that's what's going to happen. So, yeah, let's watch that unfold. Jumping in here from the editing room to tell you about Lithium Royalty Corp. Lithium Royalty Corp is at the center of a global energy transition and manages a globally diversified portfolio of lithium-focused royalties in electrification and decarbonization. With 32 royalties on 29 higher-grade, lower-cost projects from exploration to production, LIRC covers all the bases with well-managed risk, ESG considerations, and a scalable royalty structure. Lithium Royalty Corp is traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange ticker symbol LIRC. To find out more, visit lithiumroyaltycorp.com. I, I, consolidation, like any industry, there's a rush of new entrants and then um, the, the advanced projects. There's got to be, there will be consolidation. The question is, uh, several questions, you, you know, does lithium spodumene in particular, you know, emerge to have four big players like an iron ore or does it become more like copper? or, you know, some other industries where maybe there are many more, um, you know, mines in the industry. And to that point, um, you have a fair bit of experience. Albemarle came into Patriot, you're the chairman, you know, so you've, you clearly have had dialogue, you know, with Albemarle. Um, it has been my analysis, uh, our analysis that there's still, there has been, and I think still is what I'm calling a spodumene duopoly, which was, Albemarle and Minrez shut down Wajina for an extended period of time. And then Pilbara, you know, kept Altura shut down for a long time. So the price spike that we saw to 80,000 was a combination of a, a demand shock, you know, recovering from COVID and battery, you know, but very much also supply constraint, right? Because those two mines were mothballed. You now have Pilbara ramping up aggressively. You've had Wajina, you've had green bushes ramping up. So there's been a, a lot. It's not just lipidolite supply, you know, and African supply, but you're having brownfield expansions. However, Albemarle holds the swing vote on green bushes. Um, and Tangshi and, and IGO, I think, have said that not taking their full in, entitlement. And it's unclear is, if that's because Quinana is so slowly ramping or what's the rationale? Chris Ellison talks a big game about just ramping up Wajina, but he can't make the decision, you know, to ramp up without Albemarle's approvals. And Albemarle may say, it said in their last quarter, they may slow down the mine. So in my view, we may hear from Albemarle uh, maybe a slowing of the growth, you know, at Green Bushes because they're a disciplined actor, like unlike SQM in the past. I've argued that SQM was just pumping, they were growing from 50,000 tons to 150,000 tons at the bottom of the market. I somewhat blame SQM for Altura's bankruptcy because they, they, the price was just so low and, 
and you had Spodge me go below, you know, $500, even $400. So do, do, do you believe, am I right in assessing? Because I, I think if Albemarle were to make that move and if Pilbara as a disciplined actor, in my observation, the company has emerged to be very professional and corporate and they're, they're behaving like a big company and they can be disciplined. If Albemarle were to take that lead and Pilbara would also just maybe just slow down um, because the prices have gotten so cheap, um, you you would then have a similar situation we had a few years ago where, um, you know, Lapidolite can't make money, so they'll have to shut down. Um, and, and then, you know, you may have that price spike again. It, it, am I right to assess that there's still a spodge? I mean, duopoly, I don't know that this is going to continue to be the case with covalent coming on in Damascus, you know, maybe down the road, like in a few years time, maybe you'll have more mines to add to the, the, the Sigmas and the cores and the North American lithiums. But I still think, you know, Albemarle and Pilbara hold cards at least for the next 12 months. Am I, am I right in that analysis? Yeah, no, that's a credible, I think that's a credible um, description for the structure of the industry on, on the supply side. There's, there's very few really big mines, but they're the ones that, that have the ability to, to, um, to make a difference. So, uh, you pretty much hit the nail on the head. It's really, it's really just, at least today, it's really just Greenwich's Wajina, Pilgankora, um, that represent the, by far the lion's share of the production, in which case, if there's a rational, um, you know, response from supplier there, uh, then you'd say that's going to help, you know, help the market. Um, going back a step, um, the, the demand shock that you described absolutely, um, you know, was actually what happened, uh, in that period, you know, latter part of 21, 22, first half of 23, but there was another very important dynamic in play. And that was the concept of, um, let's call it. It feels like we're overusing the iron ore analogy, but let's call it the value in use of the spodumene and the spodumene's ability to capture more of the the um, the share in the downstream chemical. Um, that's also an important dynamic to consider in in that that period of time. Um, so what do I mean by that? Basically, think of it this way: um, historically, so pre pre 2009, you might be lucky as a miner um, to capture 30% um, of the margin um, that was being made at a chemical level um, for the value in use of your spodumene supporting the, the chemical conversion industry. Um, that's roughly where we started in our negotiations with, with the chemical conversion industry in China and, and largely underwritten by historical precedent um, to develop the contracts that we ultimately awarded to the chemical conversion industry for the first rounds of production at Pilgangora. Um, once we'd launched a different model um, for the purpose of discovering price, and you know, of course everyone now references the, the BMX sales platform and the, and the auctions that occurred, what actually happened was that the spodumene started to capture a significantly larger portion of the chemical margin and and to me this is a really important dynamic because what it started to show in certain market conditions was the value in use for the spodumene being supplied to the chemical conversion industry 
And I think you can rightly argue that there was periods of time in, in 2021 and 2022 where the spodumene was capturing virtually 100% of the available margin at a chemical level. Now, that's a big difference in the extremes, you know, between historical precedent, 30% of the available margin at the chemical level reporting to the value in the spodumene as compared to something approaching 100%. Um, that's a really, really big, um, broad band to be playing within. So why am I reflecting on that? I think that the entire supply chain, all the way from, you know, raw materials right through to a cell and arguably even a car has a lot more maturity to, to unfold about where margins ultimately settle over time. And I want to place a reasonable bet that actually the raw materials become a, be a beneficiary of that effect in the coming years. And the reason I'm saying that is because for the same reason China overbuilt um, chemical capacity, so, so that's, that's what typically what they will do is they construct an industry. Um, they overbuilt, that's absolutely what happened in, in China. They overbuilt chemical conversion capacity, cathode materials, arguably still today. Um, in which case, uh, you know, when the market turned and demand switched, switched on, of course, there's going to be competition for the value in, in the spodumene. If you can't produce a chemical, you can't make any margin, but it, eventually you're prepared to give some of it away to be able to produce a chemical and make a margin or a nominal margin. I think the same effect is going to happen in the Western world. And the reason it happens is because it's so much easier to build a chemical plant than it is to build a mine. It's so much easier to build chemical conversion capacity, cathode materials capacity, cell making capacity, and arguably even car making capacity than it is to actually get a mine off the ground. That's hard. And that's why you're going to get these, these horrible disconnects at different points in time in the cycle that, that attribute a huge amount of value to the miners. And I think there's a lot more of that to come. Um, now, I, I, you know, I say that and appreciate that everyone's frustrated today. Um, and I, you know, I completely understand, you know, it is frustrating. There's no two ways about it. But actually, if you're prepared to see your way through the cycle and if you're prepared to support the business so that you've got sufficient cash, you're a rational actor, um, you're, you're adjusting your supply response as a function of the way the market um, unfolds. And even better, if you can execute action or tools that improve price discovery, I think there's a reasonable chance as a miner, you're going to do well. Um, and, and there's no reason to complain if you're prepared to see your way through the cycle. So all of those things in some respects are either a function of history, what we've learned, um, or yet to unfold as the market continues to grow. But there is reason to be optimistic. It's not, it's not all bad. I have uh, more questions um, and Rod Rodney has a few as well, but I just want to go just back to the, the point. Do you think Albemarle Kent Masters said he might have to look at the mine, you know, uh, in his last quarterly call? Do you think Albemarle will slow down, you know, production at Wajina and Greenbush's number one. And number two, if you were still the CEO of Pilbara, you know, would you be cutting back production at Pilbara right now? 
Yeah, there's tension there. Um, so to, to reference uh, Albemarle in the first instance, I have the utmost respect for, for their business. Um, that's why um, Patriot's been prepared to, to entertain a really, what we hope is a very healthy discussion about interconnecting mine capacity with chemical capacity. Um, they're a very, very credible organisation. And what they've built now uh, in the lithium world at Kemerton in WA, that's absolutely first class, an amazing facility. Um, I appreciate everyone feels like it's expensive, but geez, it's obvious what they've built. It's high quality and readily expandable. Uh, it's a really, really impressive piece of engineering. Um, and then I want to give them credit for the work they've done in China too, because that's no mean feat either. Um, doing business in China is not easy. Um, but they've been very successful in building a high quality and, and bigger business over time, supporting not just China domestic production, but sophisticated Western markets with the sales they make in um, Japan and Korea. So yeah, full credit to them. And that's why we've been prepared to, to entertain a really, um, what's a very important discussion for Patriot about, you know, future mine capacity at Corvette and how we interconnect that with chemical capacity. Um, why am I talking about that? Well, you know, just a big picture view would be incredibly credible organization. Who knows what they do with, with, um, uh, with a mine or supply response. Um, but suffice to say, they're a clever business. I can't imagine that they're going to, to either, you know, misstep or misread, you know, the market. Uh, Pilgangora, what would you do there? Well, they've got a really flexible position. They've got a very flexible platform. Um, two plants, uh, healthy operating record now with, with healthy recoveries and, and a credible cross base. Um, yeah, you'd be thinking about the combination of, you know, when and which of the plants you expand, um, you know, you would be considering all that for sure. Um, I, I don't have any particular insight into the way they think about their underlying production. Um, but I have a lot of respect for the capability in the team. Okay. So they're delaying their, um, or they're taking a very slow approach to the downstream integration on their 300,000 tons. Um, you negotiated your deal with POSCO at a much more difficult time. When they started these negotiations, the price was much higher and they were in a very good negotiating position, but they're being very slow. Um, there's no rush. Again, I have so, so many questions. Albemarle came into Pilbara. There was a lot of, I'm sorry, into Patriot. There was rumors and talks, you know, maybe Pilbara would come into Patriot or um, Minrez would come into Patriot. As the chairman of Patriot, have you seen any change? Uh, you know, there's it, there's a lot of spodumene developers out there that are looking to bring on projects, you know, in the next couple of years. And they've appointed investment banks like you had appointed at, at Pilbara, you know, Macquarie, Azure, I think, you know, Global Lithium, Atlantic Lithium. Um, lithium Latin resources of all um, critical elements. They're all saying that the interest from strategics is as strong as ever, um, you know, for their projects, but we haven't seen any deals announced on those projects just yet. But you sitting as chairman of Patriot, uh, I'm sure are getting inbound as well because you had album all. Um, but, uh, you know, has there been any change in, in, in interest, you know, for the future development of Patriot? Like, how would you assess just OEM interest 
because there's an argument that they should be uh, Simon Moore, as we had on the program, he's saying now is the time, you know, the auto OEMs, the battery, the price is low. Now is the time to cut deals, get aggressive. Um, what's your sense of those dialogues? Uh, they've got more sophisticated in their approach. Um, so you're much more likely now when you're meeting with, with, a, with an OEM to have, you know, a mining team on the other side of the table um, as, compared, as compared to just a procurement team. So it feels like um, some valuable lessons have been learned um, through the cycle about, about how you engage with the mining industry. So it feels like there has been a step up there. Um, corporate interest inbound, yes, that, that's what happens. Um, and especially with, with a more significant project like, like the discovery at Corvette. Um, and actually that, that at least in part explains crystallizing our views around where we take the interconnection of mine capacity at Corvette into chemical capacity. Um, people want to buy into your company. They do. They sort of, they, you know, they want to pick up 19.9%. You know, that's a, that's a number you see bound, bandied around a fair bit. Um, we're not ready for that because we've got more value to add for our entire shareholder base. Um, but what we're absolutely ready for is that conversation about future mine capacity being interconnected with future chemical capacity that supports North American and European markets. That's a really important distinction um, that I can't stress enough about where Patriot's at. Um, as compared to, say, West Australian squadron, um, they are two distinct markets. And that's because West Australian squadron has a natural home in many respects uh, in China because China had already built chemical capacity. So, so interconnecting your mine to China capacities is, um, you know, is the first meal ticket. Um, and and it's absolutely, that was Pilbara Minerals first. Um, meal ticket, but it's not the future of global supply because nobody is going to accept being being 90% plus reliant on China. There is going to have to be alternate supply chains developed. And that's where the likes of Patriot comes to the fore. We are a very unique project in respect of scale and location and mineralogy being the key criteria for future, you know, low cost and large scale production. We are exactly the sort of uh, future mining capacity that's required to underwrite scale in big chemical facilities. You can't go and spend $1.4 billion developing major chemical facilities on the back of a, you know, 10 million, 20 million tonne resource. It's just not going to happen. Um, what you need is hundreds of millions of tonnes and ultimately, that's that's what we aspire to, um, you know, to be at Patriot. And I think all the all the hallmarks are there. And that was what ultimately got me motivated to um, to get involved in the project. So, so two different things: West Australian spodumene, shorter duration supply of China, um, because the chemical capacity is there. In the case of North America and Europe. Um, the development of a supply chain coincident with our mining capacity coming through the system in the latter part of this decade. So as we sit here today, um, we'd like to think um, production from, from 2028, well, if you're going to achieve that, you have no choice but to have those conversations underway with respect to chemical capacity today.
You don't see a Western Australian iron ore going to uh, Corpus Christi and at uh, Tesla um, or uh, even at, oh, oh, I'm sorry, did I say iron ore? <laughs> spodium, sorry, spodumene <laughs> from Western Australia going to Corpus Christi or going to uh, Albemarle's, you know, South Carolina, you know, megaplex. I and mean, it sounds like you're saying, you know, they're they're viewing their Kings Mountain, you know, plus Patriot, you know, as a potential supplier for that hundred thousand. You know, I, I, I've thought, you know, the, the distance is what once Spajmin gets to China, it has to travel like a week, you know, on truck. You know, once something's on a boat, it's not that significant. You know, what do you think about? I hear so what you're we, saying. It, we, make, it makes a lot of sense. That, while we're on that topic, you can cover the midstream. That you yeah, look at. That's another possible semi-solution. Really, yeah, really important point you've made there, Rodney, for sure. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, in, in, you know, with my Pilbara Minerals hat on historically, we had thought about the potential of spodumene penetrating global markets, so something beyond China and, and Korea. Um, but our feeling was that there was better solutions, and that's what motivated, um, you know, looking at the resource base in North America and seeing what was happening with respect to exploration and, and ultimately led to the uh, to the association with Patriot um, and the Corvette Discovery. Uh, to answer your question about does spodumene make its way all around the world? Well, the answer is maybe, um, but it doesn't feel like a long run solution for industry because you're moving a lot of waste around and handing your your customer at the chemical facility a problem because you've got you know the other ninety five percent of the, the the mass that you've shipped them. Um, that has to be dealt with as a as a waste or a byproduct stream. It's not easy to deal with, especially as the scale in the industry grows. Which is where the midstream, Rodney's quite rightly pointed out, comes to the fore. Um, my personal view is that industry is going to realign around alternate products, which I think probably includes midstream products. And to me, the logic is compelling especially once you've fully costed the carbon footprint in the supply chain, it feels like that's going to be a much more natural place for, for your industry to, um, uh, to settle uh, because it solves the, the value in use for a miner. Instead of, you know, getting X, you're getting 10X for your, for your credit for the resource in the ground. Um, you're leaving the waste at the mine, which is the most natural place for it to, to be stored. Um, and as long as you've got the right partners downstream, you're still, you're still handing them a high value product. It's much easier for them to handle, um, because the purification is the last percent as compared to purifying the other 95%. So it feels like a very natural place for, for the industry to land, um, probably a few co-commitments around technology and, and technology around calcination, particularly if it can be electrified. Um, but it's not a must-have. That's that's like a nice-to-have if you can achieve it. Um, but you could equally use conventional calcination and still achieve successfully achieve a, a midstream product solution that's probably better than today. You know, shipping spodumene around the world today. Rodney, do you have a, a few more questions, or have we addressed all of these? But I guess just one thing I, I suppose I'm interested in, I'm sure the listeners as well, is the whole Chris Jenner thing and the M&A. Uh, how do you see that, that 
M&A strategy playing out, uh, Ken, are they friend or foe? Are, are they going to work together in a partnership or are they going to go alone and battle it out with each other? Yeah. Yeah, really good question. Um, <laughs> interests are, are at least in part aligned um, about, you know, how industry could grow in Western Australia. Um, a little bit of uh, perhaps a little nationalism further around it as well. Um, who are these overseas upstarts that are looking to secure our, our lithium assets? Now, where does it end? Some are very complex. Um, the situation at Azure is not easy to, to unpick now um, because it's even more complicated than what's happening at the ASX company level because at a project level, there's joint venture interests as well. So uh, a lot more work to be done there before that one's going to be solved. Um, I guess shareholders have to be careful what they wish for too. You know, it's one thing to to ride the the, um, the bandwagon when when the on market purchases are happening, but if you ultimately end up with a stalemate, that can be that historically that's actually been quite ugly. Uh, you know, on the ASX and can can get very messy for shareholders. So um, it feels like everyone should pay attention to what's happening there. Um, now. You know, the fact that it's happened uh, feels like an unusual uh, event, um, but it's symptomatic of, a, of an industry that's still maturing and, and the interests of, of all parties are yet to be completely solved, um, which is one of the reasons why I think there is ultimately going to be a lot more M&A in the sector. Um, there's not that many places you can go to buy projects with a credible um, either exploration profile resource in the right location with the right mineralogical characteristics, all those things that I've, I've explained. Um, honestly, when you, when you really get to the chase, as much as people assume there is lots of lithium around the world, the confluence of those things is actually very rare, which is why people will typically pick at you know, a project that seems to have some merit. I want to pick up on that point. I don't know if they're working together or not, but I, I do just, I've been a shareholder of MinRes for a very long time. Um, and uh, I just sleep well at night, you know, aligned with founder, you, you know, um, lead shareholder. I don't know, I think I think it on 16, 17%. Uh, and I don't think he's going to do something stupid, although, you know, he, he sometimes says he's making it up as he goes along. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, but my, my sense is, again, going back to this kind of spodumene duopoly, which I see, I think he was annoyed or as much as he touts Albemarle. And it's great to hear you say very positive things about Albemarle. There's a lot of people who say negative things about uh, Albemarle and, and their decision making and their capital allocation over the years or their slowness. You know. But anyway, I, I, I'm a shareholder in Albemarle and I've admired them. But I, I sense there was friction between Albemarle culturally very different you know um chris ellison and the management of albemarle but chris just didn't he, he made smart moves um he partnered with you know the teams that, that know how to make chemicals but he shifted his mentality to if you own your own rock you're god and it, it doesn't like not to be in control so he restructured the marble joint venture and, and now kind of like maybe like maybe atlas or maybe like fortescue He's consolidating a lot. He wants to. He, he sees the market emerging like iron ore, and he wants to be a, a, one of the three or four major players. 
and that's behind, you know, but it doesn't have all the capital kind of like take it over. Anyway, that's what I think is happening from from his perspective. But you rightly pointed out, no matter what, with the mind services business, he always wins good, bad markets. So I think with all of those assets, they're going to pick mineral resources, you know, to do the mind service. And so he has that angle. But do you think overall this M&A activity speeds up or slows down the advancement of each of those companies' projects? Because, you know, and if it slows it down, is that part of, you know, um, creating these INR software-like margins in the industry? Is that part? Of, do you think it slows it down or speeds it up uh, given the, the, the last three months M&A? Yeah, they, they are complicated situations now. So I think that that does make life just that little bit tougher uh, in terms of actually progressing the, the project. So, yeah, a, a company that has a clean register that's supported by the right um, characteristics in terms of project inputs, resource scale, mineralogy, that type of thing, is always going to get funded. Um, but there's no doubt that the corporate um, action, I think, probably has the effect of slowing those projects down. So that's part one. Um, part two would be they're, they're, those particular projects at the very least uh, are really for the next cycle. You know, I think that's because they're not short, short term prospects as, as it relates to mine, you know, mine development. Um, as much as everybody is excited about Western Australia, it, it still, it still took us basically four and a half years to, to get a mine up and running at Pilgangora. I mean, it's easy to forget about that now, but, but that's actually what it took. Um, an interesting comparison for what it's worth is uh, from the, the submission of documents for the approval of the Pilgangora mine um, to the day we received our project approval. Um, that was about two years. It was just a fraction under two years. By our observation in Quebec, um, that, that equivalent timeline, uh, based on mine approvals in Quebec over about the last five to 10 years is actually two and a half years. So, so I look at that and think, okay, um, in many respects, we've got, you know, a similar sort of landscape in front of us as it relates to, to the project development pipeline at, um, at Corvette. Uh, in which case, you know, I think we're pretty well placed and the, by the way, the team's done an amazing job progressing the project as far as they have in a relatively short period of time. It's under two years now since the inception of the discovery. Uh, and we've done enough work to make the first submission for our mine environmental pro process, having submitted the, the project description last week. So, so full credit to the team for, for the work they've already done. And I want to give credit to Quebec as a whole um, for the effort that's now going into the support for the industry. Uh, in almost every regard, whether it's uh, funding support, um, attracting the, the key links in the supply chain, batteries, cathodes, chemical plants, and you'd expect all mines. Um, so, yeah, all power to them, I think. Um, ben, one of the things I wanted to ask um, is, I mean, you, you operated in, in Western Australia, you've got all of this M&A going on and all of these projects from an infrastructure and a labor and what have you, you know, there was something I picked up in the MinRes quarterlies about some kind of issue or congestion or what have you at port. Is the infrastructure ready for a whole deluge of new projects in arts? Yeah, 
Yeah, no, it's a challenge, um, Rodney, it is. Another one I would raise is not even about logistics, it's actually about mining itself. Um, there's a huge push now um, with respect to underground mining and the scale that's emerging for the number of projects and for that matter, the, the scale in the mines themselves. Um, that's definitely a complicating factor for mining in Western Australia because there's just not enough jumbo operators, not enough drillers, you know, not enough truck drivers um, that are ready to get this this uh, projects up and running, which which now includes lithium, but also a gold industry that that's running pretty successfully and continuing to expand capacity. So all those things definitely make for a, a tougher environment, um, arguably a bit of inflationary pressure. So, um, so yeah, I, I think that's going to be an issue um, and it might yet be an issue for public access infrastructure in, in the Pilbara. Um, people are looking to try and unwind some of those bottlenecks now and, and, you know, hopefully the capacity comes on in time that it's not going to be a constraint, but who knows. A couple more uh, questions and then I have to get my son to school. Um, so the, where do you think lipidolite is on the cost curve? There's some debate there. Uh, I don't, I forgot, Rodney, what, what, what do you think? But there, there's some discourse we saw at UBS, JP Morgan, you know, lipidolite seems to be coming off, you know, some people are saying it's cheaper, just hard to, hard to know. What's your assessment on, is that the high end of the cost curve? Where do we, where's the bottom? Right, we, in Western Australia, uh, you have core, and, and you have some others on an all-in sustaining cost basis. You know, Rodney's arguing. I, I don't. Maybe you could say, Rodney, where you think uh, these companies are, are are not making money. I think below twelve hundred. I think is going to be challenging. I think Ken, on a when when you have a look at all-in sustaining costs plus when you produce versus when you ship and working capital requirements and corporate overhead and exploration and whatever. I think if if Spodgerman tests 1,200 or, or less, I think we're going to start to see some negative free cash flow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's today. Um, I think that goes, goes higher over time. Again, motivated by novel sources of supply, underground mining, um, sedimentary hosted deposits, even DLE. Do you think there's, a, there's any credibility that Lipidolite can operate at the equivalent of $800 a ton spodumen. I'm not buying that in scale. At any rate, there might be the odd operation. Completely agree, Rodney. I think um, what China says in respect of cost and what the actual cost is are two completely different things. As I alluded to earlier, um, you might very well be motivated domestically in China to subsidize some of that production if, if you thought that it was gonna help, you know, avoid a $60,000 chemical price and and get it into a band where you really, you know, you think it's fair. Um, but as I said earlier, you know, it's a, it's feels like a mug's game. Um, you'd be better off, you'd be better off letting market forces see capital flow to the right projects, um, with a view to ensuring that the right projects get developed so that you get a reasonable long run price as compared to short termism, um, that I think is probably underway in the market today. Um, to me, this is the critical issue that's being missed by the ANOS community. Um, when they think about lithium, they, they want to shape lithium as a function of historical precedent and what China tells them. 
Um, and I don't think either is ever going to be the right answer for the industry going forward. Um, what is actually going to happen is that there will be, a there already is, there's a massive build out happening on the right hand side of the cost curve that's going to force higher pricing for longer in the medium term. Um, we've just got to suffer through this period at the moment where there's a relative disconnect between um, available supply, demand conditions, and the effect of China um, are complicating the market. So, so where do you think the, the right end of the cost curve is? Like where is, and is Lipidolite uh, the high end or is it the non-integrated spodumin converter? Yeah, there's probably a few that sit out there on the right-hand side now. Um, absolutely low-grade lipidolites are a key driver. Uh, Petalite production, which, which again suffers from, from similar issues to, to lipidolites in, as a function of grade and, and processing. Um, but I would even throw in direct shipping ores and say some of that's going to be motivating the right-hand side of the cost curve as well. Um, but it's all been part of, of China's kind of broader supply response to, to just get those lithium units into the market. But they're all probably, well, they're definitely the wrong answer for industry, I would argue, um, in the medium and the long term, um, because there's going to be there's going to be upset in Africa as a function of you know certain countries missing out. Um, or otherwise being penalised at, at the ground level. Um, and there's going to be um, environmental pen penalties downstream when you think about chemical processing and who knows how they ultimately get costed. Uh, what you really want is you want those very large scale, low cost mines in the market, um, you know, underwriting the industry's core. Um, the problem is those mines are relatively rare in the same way that they're rare in copper and iron ore and, you know, the story goes on. So, so anyway, the key point is the right-hand side of the cost curve is probably not getting enough attention, real attention, as compared to people listening to what they want to hear. Do you have a number in mind what you think the medium-term high end of the cost curve is? Yeah, historical precedents would have, would have had... Um, you know, lithium sort of in the world of let's say ten to fifteen thousand dollars a ton um, for a battery grade product. Um, I think that the new normal is probably more like twenty five to thirty thousand dollars a ton, and that's ultimately where you know where industry you know on the on the fulcrum of of you know volatility that exists in the market. Um, that's where the market starts to to swing. Um, when, when you negotiate, sorry, the, the more sophisticated counterparties on the OEM side and the battery side who now have mining teams, um, our assessment, you know, looking at, you know, Lithium Americas and GM, looking at Ioneer um, and the deals that they cut, I, I, I don't think that, the, you know, or, or Livent, um, you know, with BMW, our assessment is, is is not that they're getting 25 to 30 on price floors, right? Uh, 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 we think it's like closer to 20 or maybe even the high teens. Yeah. That this is, we don't, we don't have definitive information about this, but just like channel checks with various friends and that we're talking to about those negotiations is that it hasn't set in to the OEM's mind that 25 and 30 is the price that they're very, they're comfortable to pay on a floor basis, maybe on the high end. Um, but if they're trying to get debt, 
you know, if the company is saying we could produce seven or 8,000, you know, the OEMs are saying, okay, if you're going to produce at that, then 15 or 18,000 should be, you know, sufficient for a floor. Yeah. So the question to be asked there, is it really seven or $8,000 a ton cost? I guess that's one, one, one way to look at it. Um, <laughs> but, then, but then again, if I was an OEM, I'd, I'd be saying to them, if I was negotiating with them today, I'd be saying, but hang on, you're paying $35 a, a, a kilo in Japan and Korea today. Um, it just mm -hmm. happens that in China, you know, the volatility is motivated to prices probably today's, so I don't know, 20 odd, um, or even sub 20. Um, but you're still paying $35 a ton in Japan and Korea. So, so, you know, um, you, not all lithium tons are the same and not all lithium tons by jurisdiction are the same. It's a pretty complex market. And of course, China is incredibly volatile. Um, the interesting thing to me is that equity markets fret about the China price. And I understand, you know, it's a big part of the market, um, but don't lose sight of the fact that in Japan and Korea, they're still paying $35 a kilo. It's now, would anyone have been disappointed with that price, you know, just, just two and a half years ago? Well, the answer is no, they wouldn't have been. And, um, and if you want, really want to translate, what's the value in the squad you mean at $35 a kilo? There's every chance you'd be getting a lot more than, than say 12 or 1300 bucks, 1400 bucks a ton that you might be getting today when you're selling to the China market. So I don't know, there's a lot to be, to be unpicked and it's probably a, a whole other conversation, but the other point I'd make is don't lose sight of the variability in the value that the spodumane can attract in respect of the chemical margin, because that is also a huge variable in the market. Um, and at least in part explains why, you know, Pilbara was able to get $8,000 a ton um, sales away, you know, as a function of the, the, um, the BMX platform. Um, because they were stealing the lion's share of the, the, the downstream chemical margin, not just because of the, the value of the spodumene itself. So you've said that multiple times and where you're aligned with Chris Ellison, you're aligned with, um, you know, Rodney and me, um, keep it simple, stupid, keep it spodumene, stupid, spodumene software margins. That's where you're sitting value in use as continuing to be there uh, relative to the chemical margin. It can't be 100% spodumene and zero on the chemical. There have to be, you know, chemical margins over time, but, you know, 50, 60, 70% margins that, you know, Rio Tinto and BHP and Fortescue have been enjoying for a long time. Um, that's your bet. You know, that's our bet. Final question, and then a couple more analogies to, uh, you know, the Rolling Stones um, is, uh, you know, in September, we were speaking to one of our clients, uh, we hadn't spoken to him for about a month, and he started the conversation, and it was just like, it feels like 2018, you know, and other people were like, oh, yeah, it feels like 2018. Um, so 2018 followed 2019, you know, and, and then it, it was COVID, you know, it wasn't until like battery day, September 2020. So if we were in 2018 or are in 2018, you know, do we have, you know, 18, 24 months more here or has, has the cycle been compressed where like 2018 in September, you know, we're now in kind of like 2019 in December, like how close to the bot, like, cause the, the, Again, just the Wuxi futures, you know, is every day going limit down. I get the fast markets, the S&P, everything is gloom and doom, to use a Rolling Stones analogy, a song analogy. Um, 
what's your assessment of where we are if you were to compare it to that last cycle? Yeah, cycle wasn't even just about price. Um, it was it was sale versus no sale. Um, and that's one of the things about the lithium market that should never be ignored as an industrial mineral um, and not being anything like the liquid market that say iron ore is. It's not as though under certain circumstances there is a clearing price for every tonne. Um, you know, we got to the point where we, we couldn't sell tons and, and literally ran the mine on a campaign basis and we'd celebrate and ring the bell once we, once we made a sale and we could restart the mine. So, um, so conditions then were, were, I feel, actually quite different to, to market conditions that exist today. Um, I'm not aware of, of any one customer saying, do not deliver that vessel. Um, but I can assure you that was what was happening in 2019 and 2020. Uh, very, very difficult conditions, um, not even just about price, because there was there was a, a time when you just couldn't sell a ton. didn't matter what the price was, they didn't want it. So we're not there. Um, and I, and I, honestly, I wouldn't really expect that to be the case in the current market because the market's grown. What, what it, it's probably... Um, even in that period of time, it's probably gone close to two or three times growth already um, with another sort of two or three times to go before the end of the decade. So it feels like that circumstance would be unusual um, and, and therefore we can be reasonably optimistic. Um, as to the cycle itself, well, I look at um, I look at the demand conditions and actually still have some reason to be optimistic. China's still printing record um, record uh, sales in, in EVs. They are very, very strong now in export capacity. Um, I don't know how close you guys have been watching that data, but they've tripled exports in, in EVs over about the last Yeah, this was one years. of my, my questions, but you covered it with the legacy OEMs because I think they're losing out in the rest of the world hand over yeah. fist. Yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly right. It's not as though that in Europe they don't want to buy EVs, they just don't want to buy expensive. They want to buy D. Exactly. Yeah, they've hit the right price point. And interestingly, the, the fact that lithium prices have come off, well, that's a key contributor to lowering the cost of the EVs. So you grow the market. I don't know. You know, it's a, to me, um, Western OEMs are on a hiding to nothing and, um, and they're going to have to change the game or governments are going to have to change the game to support the industry, which are huge industries in in the US and Europe. So I feel like that's yet to come. Um, some signs are there um, with probably more action yet. Um, yeah, so in light of those demand conditions, um, I actually had, I thought, reasonably expected some stability in the market already. Um, it hasn't worked out that way, uh, but I still remain optimistic that, that we don't need to hit the panic button. Uh, you would like to think that the cycle is going to be relatively short. I look at that short interest in Pilbara Minerals and think, gee, that's a, that's a pretty dangerous bet to me. Um, the minute the market turns, that's that's going to be a bloodbath, you would think. Um, and it's what not minute? What what, what 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 month is that minute? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's a million dollar question. It's a big short interest in there's what's that? Two billion dollars worth of stock that's got to be bought back. So yeah, it's a you know for a stock that admittedly is liquid. But 
you know, a hundred billion dollars a day, you're not going to buy back your, your two billion dollars worth of stock in, in in a hurry. So it's going to be a problem once that day comes. Um, yeah, short cycles. Uh, the the growth in the market, I think, has the effect of creating short cycles because demand conditions are really strong. You know, you mentioned ESS earlier. Um, China's a big player there. They've got the right engineering solution around LFP batteries. They're starting to penetrate global markets more fully than they did historically. So we should watch that one. Um, in addition to the EVs that they're shipping abroad. So yeah, I, I still I still remain optimistic about this industry and um, the money to be made through the cycle. Okay, Ken, thank you very much. I got to get to my kids to school, but um, we almost called Canada Rocks last year, um, Hot Rocks, which was the, the first ever greatest hits album from the Rolling Stones. But I, I switched, I think, to uh, Lithium Rush because uh, Rush was a, a Canadian band. But um, you can't always get what you want. You can't, you know, I can't get no satisfaction are um, songs that we have used. I remember uh, interviewing um, in Santiago Fast Markets. Um, which was a big down market. I, I, Rolling Stones seem to have you know more negative uh, songs than positive songs as I've tried to you know create narratives about them. But um, time is on my side, uh, or as time is on all our sides. And uh, going back to their latest new album, Hackney Diamonds, I've referenced this, but there's a great song. If you haven't listened to this album yet, can I encourage you to go on Spotify? and and download you know not only so, the the angry lithium is, is a or angry is a good song I, I i called this angry lithium uh in a, a recent lithium bowl but uh the song with uh, lady gaga sweet sounds of heaven uh is my um is my favorite song so you know sweet sounds of heaven lithium nirvana um you know i feel like almost famous you know lithium 3.0 uh i used as a as an analogy you know, to almost famous 2.0 in the last cycle. We're frustrated. We didn't call this. Um, there's a lot of reasons, you know, for it. But you think the cycle, it just is a matter of, you know, we were very bullish in March, right? Uh, and it's now six, nine months later. Um, hopefully, we'll interview again sometime in the spring and or summer of next year. And, uh, you know, Pilbara and Patriot stock will be higher. Um, if you were a betting person, would, would you think it's like flat, higher or lower um, by uh, six months time from now? Yeah, high. yeah, yeah. Hi I think that's, that's not unreasonable. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm a Foo Fighters fan, mate. I was at their concert here in Perth last week and China is the monkey wrench. That's the, uh, that's the, one of my analogies I'd share with you, mate. They, yeah, they're a complicating factor in the market and, and and I don't think their demand is going away. So eventually you see stability emerge. And, and I do feel like there does need to be a higher price. Otherwise, you're not going to attract the capital to the market. So that's that's ultimately where we land. Thank you for that. I have uh, um, Keith Coglin of European Metals Holdings uh, sent me um, a video from that Foo Fighters concert. I don't know <laughs> if you, you saw him there but uh, i think we have the song we're going to use um for the teaser for this uh interview uh the foo fighters monkey oh, wrench 
Thank you very much, Ken Brinsden. Again, uh, this was long. I don't know if we'll break this into a two-parter or just one long interview, but I think uh, our listeners are, are going to very much uh, appreciate um, the, the very in-depth. Uh, we covered a lot of ground here, and uh, thank you for all this time. Pleasure to be with you guys. Thanks for your time. Okay. Take care, Ken. All the best, Ken. Bye-bye.